Hello, my friends, and welcome to a special edition of the New World Kirtan podcast. It's Tuesday, May 13th, 2014. I'm Kitsy Stern, and our show is produced as an act of love and service to the worldwide Kirtan community. It's also an audio journal of my spiritual journey through the practice of singing and playing Kirtan. Gina Salah is a vocalist, composer, music director, sound healer, and teacher from right up the road from us in Seattle. Her love of the human voice has taken her to performing and studying throughout much of the world. She has performed at the U.S. Pentagon, the U.S. Capitol, the United Nations, and she was a principal singer for Cirque du Soleil's O. Gina believes that we can sing ourselves awake to who we really are, and that our voices and chant are divine gifts for illumination and powerful tools for healing. She's a singer's singer, and it was a real treat to talk with her. So today I'm I'm speaking with Gina Salah, and I'm just so happy to have have you on the show today, Gina. Welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to meet you here. Yeah, it's it's really wonderful. Uh, I was reading over your biography and listening to your CD, uh, Grace Has the Scent of a Rose, and I have to say, I, there are so many interesting musical influences on that CD. And I'd, I'd like to start to talk to you a little bit about your childhood. And um, you spent some time with Swami Shivananda Radha as a child, right? Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, Swami Shivananda Radha was the guru of the wonderful saint and humanitarian and doctor and yogi Swami Shivananda. Yeah, my early childhood, I was so blessed to be with her and with Nada Brahmananda, who is the sound guru, and uh, just really, I just, it was a blissful time of chanting every single night, or sometimes twice a day, yeah. Oh, how wonderful. How long did you spend, how long did you spend there, and and what was the history of you being able to, to go? Well, I was there about, uh, from the age two and a half up until we were living there full time until I was just about six, I think five and a half. So it was all the time when I'm learning to speak and learning oh, to speak. Oh, right. And then, of course, we ha- had the relationship continue. Um, 
uh, when I when I came back from India, I went. I was in India in my early twenties, and when I came back, Swami Sivananda Radha sent me up there again to share what I'd been learning, and and uh, so it's been a, a real long relationship with the ashram where I'm in and out, but always feel the the connection to Swami Sivananda Radha. What a wonderful thing as a child to have that extended family and that feeling of community. Yeah, really wonderful. So is this where you were first exposed to Indian style of singing? Must have been, huh? Yeah, two and a half. I guess it was. I might have heard it around somewhere before then. But um, yeah, and you know, I, I had just recently, I led a workshop actually up at my parents' house. They're, I'm a dual citizen with Canada. And up at their house, I led a workshop last summer in raga singing and mantra and chant. And I happened to ask my mom, did we really chant and have satsang every night? And she said, yes, every single night. You know, so it was a lot of chanting, you know, in my formative years. And my brother and I were the only kids for a while. So I think, you know, we had free run. We would get to hang out with the swamis and the music swami, Nada Brahmananda. And we would say, what's your name? And he would say, Nada Brahmananda. And we'd say, then what are you? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Just a lot of silliness, too, a lot of lightness. So it wasn't like this pious spirituality. It was a very serious sadhana, right. serious practice. But as a child, there was so much lightness, too. So then when you came back to the States, how did, you, how did your musical study continue? Well, when I came back, you know, I was a kid just trying to fit in with normal kids. But we lived in uh, Spokane for a while, a very short time. And then we lived out in the country. And so for me, there was this river that we lived on that I would always sort of cut through the barbed wire fence and jump across to this rock. And that's how I prayed. I would just sing my heart out to the river and to God. You know, I had a lot of privacy at that point. And a lot was going on in our life. And that was my way of staying sort of in my heart and connecting with God. And I played trumpet through school. um, Although at a certain point in high school, um, my family, bless them, <laughs> had made me quit trumpet so that uh, I could take home ec. So my formal instruction stopped, but I always continued playing and singing and writing music. But really, to be honest, my main thing was I went around the world collecting songs and studying healing techniques in a lot of the 90s. So I, you know, my passion was what is it in music that connects us? So even if we don't know the language, what is it in the human voice that we can we can feel? For example, if I sing, um, say in Greek, you can feel an emotion in that, whether or not you know what it's about. You know, is it a happy light song, or is it something of angst, which that one is. And so I I found songs to be my connection to the heart of humanity. And every time I met somebody who was an immigrant, every time I traveled, which was a lot, I was constantly opening my ears and face and heart and body to, to try to learn from them, their songs and, and the way they relate to them. And that was kind of my full-time exploration. Wow. Wow. And is that what took you to Japan? Well, interestingly, I was in Japan when I was 15. My school had chosen me to be a sister city representative. And somehow they sent me to Japan when I was 15. 
And so when I graduated from college, um, I went to Whitman College, I realized I wasn't completely sure what I wanted to do with my life. And so I thought, and I remember I had had a philosophy teacher tell me I had an Eastern mind, <laughs> whatever uh-huh. that was. And so I decided I would go back to Japan and see what that meant. Well, how interesting. And so, you know, you were there at the same time that we were. That's amazing. Isn't Maybe we met in the subway or something. I, you know, that that could very well have happened because we were on the subways all the time. And Jesse, you know, Jesse, he was um, he was three months old when we went. Wow. And uh, and my uh, oldest boy was six. So uh, they were in school there. Were you in Tokyo? I was in Tokyo. Yeah. Yeah. So were we. How funny. All these years later, we should connect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So you went on a two-week vacation to Thailand. Yes. Ah. So uh, to be honest, I got really burned out there. I was really a workaholic. I I really worked a lot also in in college, which was great, but I was involved in everything you could be involved in. And in, in Tokyo, too, my work was I was working for a wine importer, and I was leading wine testing tastings and writing for a gourmet magazine and working for an architect and working also for NHK, the news service. So I was working like 80 hours a week, um, just sort of, you know, full of spitfire, I guess. And for the first time in my life, I realized I couldn't feel God when I prayed. I couldn't feel anything. And my heart just broke. And I, I went on a little journey in Japan, which was really nourishing and musical, but at a certain point, I just felt like, you know, nothing is more important than God in this connection. And the way I was living so full on, and, and my I was working a lot with the embassies, there, so there's work in the day and the parties at night, and I just needed a break. So I took a two-week vacation to Thailand, and I think the first night I was in a bar in Bangkok, and these guys were singing Rolling Stones covers, and I was... Uh, I offered to help them with the lyrics, and then they asked me to sing. So I sang for a few nights in their bar, these Thai guys and me. (laughs) (laughs) And then, um, but I still, I kept trying to get farther and farther away and and deeper into nature, because nature's always been where it's the easiest for me to feel the spirit, you know. And so finally, I took took an airplane to Kathmandu, to the Himalayas in Nepal, and as soon as the plane hit the tarmac, I just dropped to my knees and started bawling. I remember the guards coming over and like, get up, lady. <laughs> and I just felt like so happy. I just felt this rush of love and this rush of like whatever somehow busy blocks I'd put up to the spirit. I just felt them all melt. So that was the beginning of my current journey in reconnecting with the mantra and chanting of my childhood. Yeah. Okay, and then you met up with? They were having a little revolution when I was there, so we couldn't leave the guest's house. In fact, this guy I knew got shot in the leg. But when it calmed down, um, I ended up staying at Kopangompa, which is a beautiful Mahayana Tibetan Buddhist monastery there. And after some time and a lot of just beautiful spaciousness, I decided to go walking, and I left. And... Basically, I got lost in the Himalayas um, through a series of actual grace. I was lost there for many months. And every night I found a place to sleep. Every night I was safe. There was one night that was sketchy. And all day long I just sang to God, all day long. 
I prayed and sang until oh, there was just this um, fire. You know, it started off like praying and singing, not that luminous, but in the end, really ecstatic joy. Oh, what a beautiful experience. Yeah, yeah, it was wild. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Uh, is this is this where you met Papa G during this period? No. So what's interesting, so it took a long time um, before I found my way back down to India, but I took a bus down to India. And uh, that's another little miraculous story, how I met Papa G. But basically from Varanasi, I, uh, I went to Lucknow and met my guru Papa G, Punja G. What an amazing story. Yeah, it was... It's, it's a, it, you know, when I talk about it, it just seems so wild, I realize, like almost wilder than I could even say. But it was, at the time, it seemed normal because that's all I was doing, you know? <laughs> right. But but you, but through grace, you you went and you just wandered, but yet you, you had everything that you needed. Yeah. And people ask what I ate. And it was every day, almost every day, like literally only one day. Did I not? Every day I found little huts, and there would be people there, and I would give them just a little bit of money. Um, we would swap songs. We would share songs, and they would give me potatoes and garlic and yak butter tea. And I remember when I met that Dutch anthropologist, the one that I mentioned earlier, I said to him, isn't it amazing? Every night people are singing in these places. It's incredible. And he said, uh, no, Gina, I've been wondering when I'd been meeting, I'd be meeting you, I've been hearing about this sort of woman that doesn't speak their language. And I was wearing kind of their clothing, a big long dress and hiking, but I was obviously Western. But I was quite dark from the sun, and I think I looked like I was about 14, you know. <laughs> and uh, and he said, yeah, they call you Baini Salah. And I said, what does it mean? And he said, it means little sister, sound of the river. <sighs> And so he said, you know, we don't have TV up here, nothing. You're the entertainment. So the reason there are so many people in the huts when you come sometimes is you walk very slow, and they're quicker and faster than you. And sometimes the locals go ahead and say, hey, she's heading this way. And just maybe for entertainment, I guess, they would come and gather and sing with me, and we'd all sing together. (laughs) That is so great. That's that's the origin of my name, the origin of your name, Salah, yeah, is is from that time. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> when yeah. we relinquish control, we don't even know the forces that are that that are in play. You had no idea that was going on, did you? Not at all. Especially when I thought, wow, there's so many people living in each of these huts. And <laughs> turned out, you know, they're so much more in shape than I was. They were so quick, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that's a great story. Yeah. And they were so good, too, because the locals, you can't tell the difference between the yak trails and the human trails sometimes. So sometimes I'd be wandering off in some place or some place with a little too many monkeys, and they would start yelling at me and saying, don't, don't I go this way? And so I got a lot of guidance from just locals on the path. And then when he told me that, I realized, oh, they, they were probably looking out for me a bit, you know. <laughs> how sweet. Oh, how sweet, sweet, sweet. So how was it? When you came back? Well, when I came back finally, uh, after, so I sat with Papaji, who's an Advaita guru, who is, you'd sit sit with him and the mind would just go blank. And I was not looking for a guru at that time. In fact, I was very clear I didn't want one. 
but it was a pretty mystical meeting. So I had been with him, and my year-long ticket was expiring. And I said, hey, I'm going to live here forever and make chapati. And he said, no, you have to go, go, go home, share, share. And I was, I'd been in bliss for many months in Lucknow, India. And suddenly, the bliss ended. I thought, oh, no, I have to leave my sweet guru. And uh, so quickly, like within two days, I had to gather and leave because otherwise <gasps> oh. I would forfeit my ticket. And, um, you know, I'd been away for quite some time. So I left, and it was, kind of, it was quite a shock. Going to Asia was not such a shock. And, you know, I tell people this all the time. I've been leading tours to India for a long time. And I always say, going there is somewhat of a culture shock. But there's also quite the surprise when you come home, as you, you probably know, Kipsy. It's like the things we take for granted, and especially at that time, I couldn't believe that people had garages and that there are homeless people, mm-hmm. you know, for example. Not, not that there's a judgment. It just seems so confusing. So coming home was a little bit hard, honestly. I was living in Seattle. I was trying to get a job, at, and I was temping at a computer company. Um, so it was wild. It took me, you know, a, that's when I really had to dive into my practice because it was... It was, uh, it just all seemed so busy. and Oh, it's always a shock when you come back from, from being in another country. But I imagine coming back from India, it must be even more of a shock to reenter this society in particular with as busy as everyone is and as disconnected as everyone is. I've never been to India, but I've always wanted to go. And it's, uh, it, it must, it, it just strikes me as being a really just a very different, re- how do I put it? I, a, a, a different, such a different way of living than the way we live here. Yeah, you know, it's like life and death, and food and cows. It's all just right there. And one thing I, the way I describe it, and by the way, come with me in in the fall if you want. Um, mm. But it's like here in general now, not in our bhakti world. It's we have such a beautiful community. I love living here with all the amazing people. But in general, what I felt like at the time was that. There, people see see you as, you know, Kitsy, the beautiful voice person, the person with the radio show, you know, all these attributes, the woman, the mother. And then behind that, maybe, oh, and a soul, you're a soul, you're Atman, you're an eternal soul. But there it felt like, especially where I was, it was just so clear and obvious that we are just these interconnected eternal souls, you mm. know. Jesus said the same thing, I am the vine, you are the branches, I and the Father are one. So that the, at the time there, it's just obvious that we are souls. And then the secondary thing is, oh, you happen to be a woman this time, or oh, you happen to be American this time. And, you know, whatever anyone believes about reincarnation or any of that, it's just um, the spirituality is such a huge part of it there. It's, it's, I think it's, I'm, I'm seeing it more here, but when I first got back, I didn't see it as much. I remember when I first came back from Japan, I, I stood, <laughs> I was in Fred Meyer and I had to buy orange juice. And I stood there and there were so many kinds. It was just so confusing. If you go to the store in Tokyo, if they either have orange juice or they don't. But, but it was just, there are so many things like that that you don't even think of here. And you go away and then come back and it makes you question a lot. 
a right. lot. I think that's one of the great values and the privileges of, of where we are right now. We get to, whether or not we travel even, just in our cities, meet people from so many places that the things we take for granted and the and also the ideas we have that separate us, and this goes back to the music, they're not so separate. Our basic needs, our basic desires are so the same. Our shared humanity, the emotions, the loving, the longing. <clears throat> but then the cultural things, they're so superficial, and yet they could be so different. It's wild. So you came back, and you were trying to reacclimate, and you were working, I think you said, at a software company? or You, were, where you were know, you I work? just did a little temping yeah. at, at for Aldous, which was a precursor to Adobe. You know? Oh, interesting. It's so funny. I've never actually talked about all this stuff. This is great. And what happened is I kept singing while I'd be, because my job was to try to make the computers crash, which apparently I'm still good at. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like doing all these things, crashing things. <laughs> but I would start singing. And I remember this lady at the next cubicle, and I was only a temp. She'd be like, shh. And I'd say, oh, sorry. And then I'd start working again. And I'd start singing again. And she'd say, shh. Oh, sorry. And finally, this woman from the other side of the cubicle said, hey, Maybe you should start coming and singing with us. And so that opened a whole world of um, just beautiful musical community in Seattle, and then which turned into, you know, musicians from a lot of different genres and cultural backgrounds that I've played and sung with here. That is so reflected on on your CD. That's well, we'll get into that because your CD, every single one of those songs on Grace as the Scent of a Rose, it must have an, a really interesting story. And I know we're only going to be able to get into a couple, but let's let's hold on that just a little bit. I just want to. I mean, it's a, you were you were singing in clubs a little bit. Is that part of that musical community that you were talking yeah. about? Yeah, I sang a bit in clubs um, with the Navajo. Music. There was one band I had with this Navajo man, John Fedorovius, Navajo Russian, and a Moroccan person, and uh, Jeffrey Castle. We had a band, and then I also had a band uh, that I was in called Black Cat Orchestra, and we played a lot of Turkish and Greek and French and different songs. <laughs> so uh, cool. there was a lot of different stuff happening, and of course that was in the grunge area era of Seattle, but we were doing our own things. And one day I was backstage. I remember I was backstage. I'm getting ready to sing, and the whole place smelled like alcohol. And and when I went out there, I just remember there was graffiti everywhere, which is you know fine. But I remember just praying. I wish I could just sing to God. Like I don't really care about coming out and singing to a bunch of drunk people. And um, at the time, you know, that was back when you could smoke in bars. And if, although the music was interesting, I just had this longing to sing to God. And not too long after that, I started leading Kirtan, and it, that's when it became a real regular thing that I did in public. Prior to that, it was mostly my, more my personal practice. And, and that came from your time in India, the Bhakti Yoga? Well, yeah, in childhood, right? We sang right. Kirtan and chanting every single night and sometimes in the morning. So where does Cirque du Soleil come in in this, in this um, period? Ah, so that was actually pretty recently. That was in 2004. Three and four, two thousand, yeah, three four. Um, I I had done some work with a Los Angeles composer, 
um, where he had wanted a singer to sing with the Seattle Symphony some world music, and I had been recommended. So I sang this music that eventually was used for Disney World in Florida's Islands of Adventure, sort of an, an Aladdin, Sinbad theme, I think. I haven't been there, so I haven't seen it. Um, but uh, apparently the people from Cirque du Soleil heard it and found out who the singer was and called me. And the funny thing is, my bass player, my long-term bass player for the Kirtans and my other group, uh, had told me he had played for a circus and that it was terrible and I never want to play for a circus. So the circus had called me kind of in the holiday season and I was really busy and I hadn't called them back. And out of the blue, after maybe a couple years, this composer from L.A. had called me up and asked me what was up and you know, I told him, and he said, any other calls? And I said, well, some circus is calling me. I haven't called them back. And he said, what's the name of the circus? And I, said, <laughs> I said, well, Cirque du Soleil. Well, I'm, I'm kind of a country bumpkin. I didn't know. He goes, call them back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a call you return. Uh, if you, you know, but if you don't know who they are, so this is for, for this was for O, right? Now that's one that I haven't seen. O was about water, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a beautiful water show. I totally recommend you see it. It's um, it's in Las Vegas in the Bellagio, which is beautiful in and of itself. And you know, I saw it over eight hundred fifty times or something like that, and I still love it. Love the music. Love the show. Really great. I could really see how your voice would be perfect for for one of those productions because it's so. I, I mean, when I when I learned that, I didn't know that about you, and when I learned it, it was like, oh, well, of course. takes me to your CD because there are some, well, <laughs> let's start with some of the stories that I'd like to know about about some of the music on it. Swept Away. Ah. Swept Away with, with Tulku? Is yeah. that, that's, it gives me chills every time I listen to it. Mm, so tell you. me about that. You know, that was a collaboration with Tulku. <clears throat> Excuse me. He actually has done some of the music for the Buddha Bar CDs, and he just passed away about a year ago, Jim Wilson. Oh, too bad. Um, but basically, again, he had heard me sing, and he asked me to come out to his studio in New Mexico. Anyway, every night he would give me a track and ask me to compose music for it and record it the next day. 
And so I was in this beautiful, empty Adobe house, and he gave me this track, and that's the song that came out. We just recorded it very quickly the next day. And for me, there's some sounds in it that sound、um, like stampeding cattle and sound, sound like a storm. And it's that idea of, you know, I think most of us, once we're a certain age, have had it happen where either your beliefs or someone you love or something you thought was going to remain the same gets swept away.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, in the midst of that storminess, because it's happened to me this way also, there's this voice She will nourish you. And it's that reassurance of behind all the stuff that can come and go. There is a voice, there is a sound, there is a love that remains and that never leaves us. So that's kind of the feeling of that song for me. Ooh, it's powerful. Are they Native American? Oh, actually, no. So, this is, I used to work a lot with the kids in the projects here in Seattle. And in the end, I sing, Makayalo, Madina Yalo, Makayalo, Madina Malo, Moyahulo, Namotie. Yeah. And that came out of, I went to meet with the parent of one of the kids that I was working with. And she was from, she was from Somalia. And the Bajuni people is an ethnic group in Somalia. And she was talking about how she missed it and how, at one time every year, the tide goes out far enough that a sandbar is exposed. And if, you, you know, if you've ever been in villages, there's not a lot of privacy. You can hear people making love and babies crying. You can hear everything because there's not insulation. And so she was telling me that the people would slosh out one by one to the sandbar. And have privacy to sing and cry to God and pray and let it all go. And on the beach, the people would be feasting and singing the chant that I just chanted to give them their privacy. Another one I loved was the Yuki Masho. 
Ah. <laughs> what? <So> these, <laughs> these are all such interesting projects. That was actually um, a project with a group called Strayaways that never got off the ground, but I was asked to come in and sing. It was Jeffrey Castle and another violinist. And it just, um, you know, you'll appreciate this kid. See, Yukimasho is like Ikimasho. Right. It's Japanese. Let's I, go. Yeah. So Yukimasho means the same thing as Ikimasho? Yeah, it's just a little bit of a dialect. <laughs> okay. It's just a feeling of, um, it's it just, I pictured, you know those old paintings, those black and white ink paintings in Japan? I pictured them coming to life and this woman sort of popping out of the painting and realizing that just like art has life and that consciousness is everything, she just says, let's go, and there's a story in the painting. <laughs> workshops, and I, I know that you give workshops at, at the festivals. Are you going to be giving one at Chakti Fest? Not this year. No, I have in the past. This year I'm just singing. You know, I just have to say, so Shakti Fest actually is so in line with what I love in terms of bringing people together to feel the shared humanity, to connect in the spirit. Uh, a lot of my favorite musicians and my sweet friends and music we met at Shakti Fest and Bhakti Fest. Um, and this year I'm going to be playing, I think, just after noon on Saturday at the main stage. Oh, and you are so perfect at that at that time of day. You know, I mean, there's a song that you do, and I hope it's going to be on your next CD, the 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 Harabam. Is that the name of it? Yeah, actually, I've got a CD in the works right now, and it's got a lot more of the kirtan and the groove stuff happening. Yeah. Yeah, that that just is, it, it always strikes me as, as the perfect song for the time of day that you that they put you on, because it's, it's just sort of usually either in the morning or early in the afternoon, and everybody's just sort of mellow, you know, and... Tell me a little bit about your about your workshops for voice, because I, I think that what you have to say about voice and music, but specifically voice and the way it it, it unites us, it mm. unites us as humans. Um, underlying all the differences are the things that unite us. And and uh, tell me how you think the voice does that. Mm. Well, you know. Every human voice is unique. It's as unique as our, as our fingerprints. We know that, you know, the CIA can do voice prints, for example. And every spiritual tradition that I know of uses singing to connect to the spirit behind our ego minds, behind, you know, this, this um, apparent finite personality. And until Western allopathic medicine, even herbal medicine, all the medicines use singing and chanting for healing. So I actually believe that every voice is like an inner apothecary shop, an inner medicine shop for each person, meaning your voice, Kitsi, would be the healing voice for you, especially. And I also know that when we sing together, what happens? Literally, our cells entrain, our breath entrains. Literally, you know, 
we feel in tune with each other. And when people sing, we can feel their heart. When someone sings at a wedding or a funeral, that's when the tears often come, right? <laughs> and so I, I believe that the human voice is actually completely sacred. And every voice, exactly as it is, is a miracle. And so in my voice workshops, I, I of course, share technique to help support a free voice, breath, resonance, tone. But also, for me, it's foundational to allow the emotion, to allow our heart to sing, to allow, to make it an offering, you know, rather than something to show off with. Um, to let our imagination be part of it. So we're not just technicians, we're artists. And in that, there is such a deep satisfaction because so often, you know, our creativity isn't called in as much or we rein in some of our emotions. And in singing, it's a time to just let your whole self shine and bloom. That's so beautiful. And the one thing that strikes me about our culture in particular is that many people are shamed into thinking that they can't sing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that was a big difference for me when I went to Japan because with the karaoke bars, everybody was singing. It's true. And, I mean, when I would tell them that, you know, people in my country think they can't sing, Japanese people would look at me as though I was great. Well, of course everybody can sing. Um, but, you know, many times um, people are told to be quiet in choirs when they sing off key or whatever. And and it's it's not, it, it doesn't really lend itself in this culture to being a spiritual expression unless unless you can let go of that and just, and just sing your heart out no matter what, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And in order to have that freedom, you know, there are ways to get that freedom. One can be told, don't be shy, sing out. <clears throat> but there are pathways in. Mantra is a great pathway to calming the mind, to interrupting the pattern that says, I suck or they suck or I better not suck, you know, yeah. chanting. And then literally ways of, of opening up the ribs, just really simple physical things with the tongue and the lips. There's so much that just with a little bit of guidance, people can suddenly feel more freedom and actually get the pleasure of singing and the power of their voices. <laughs> so, um, and part of it comes from, you know, the voice is very sensitive. It's, uh, we have to treat it with a lot of respect. I really believe it is a sacred instrument and we don't even own it. It is divine energy coming through the bodies. So we just support it. Shakti. Yeah, I think that like the eyes, um, the voice is a window um, yes. to the soul. Yes. And just like the eyes, you know, I could pat you hard on the back and it wouldn't bother you. But if I barely touched your eye, it would be kind of too much. The eyes are so sensitive. Likewise, I can say, hey, nice shoes, Kitsy, no big deal. But if someone says that about someone's voice, because it's so essential, mm -hmm. it can really go deep. Yeah, it really can. So, Gina, if we wanted to learn a little bit more about the workshops that you offer, um, where would we... Well, why don't you tell me a little bit more about what you offer and how people can find out about it? Oh, thank you. Well, one of my passions, of course, is Sanskrit pronunciation because there is so much power 
in well-pronounced mantra, these words of power, both to open our hearts, to clear old patterns, and to wake us up to this magnificence inside. So in my workshops, I offer mantra pronunciation and experience. I offer voice technique and empowerment so we can actually feel in our embodiment the pleasures of this divine voice and get the confidence to share it. I help people write their own kirtans. And a lot of the people that I work with are now out there leading kirtan, which is super great and satisfying. And so that happens in the workshops. There's information at ginasalah.com. Um, and then I also offer Skype sessions in those same areas. If people ever want, you know, just last night, someone at the last minute contacted me because she was going to lead uh, a complex mantra in a yoga, I guess a conference or a retreat, and she wanted some help with it. So I, I do voice technique and mantra and harmonium lessons also on Skype. And people can just email me via my website and we can set it up if they like. Oh, that's wonderful to know. I think you really have a lot to offer in that area, and um, I hope people will take advantage of it. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's a beautiful thing to be able to sing together and to feel that community. And that's a wonderful thing about bhakti yoga is that all the voices merge into one, and you don't need to worry about your own individual voice and how you sound. Yeah, and also, you know, it kind of, I think we have a weird... Um, addiction to some kind of perfection, right? I mean, look at if the trees, I'm looking out at the trees, if they were all supposed to stand exactly straight, I mean, how weird would that be? Every tree is a little different, every voice, every bird singing a little differently. And um, what I love about bhakti is it's love. You know, when you're in love, you don't say, whoops, you should have said it differently. Whoops, you should have kissed me slightly different. It's sort of being present in the heart, you know, like just now, I just got a horse. <clears throat> it's, it happens. We are human. We're not machines. And I see the yoga of the heart, the yoga of devotion, of celebrating that, that God, goddess, is in all of it. And can we learn to see as love sees and hear as love hears, you know? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's quite beautiful. And I find that as I progress in this practice that my feelings about it are, are, are changing and, and my feelings about just participating in it and, and allowing myself to be vulnerable and allowing those layers to peel away. All those armored layers that we put on ourselves just because of the things that life will do, you know, and you think that you need that, to, that armor to protect you and, and to let yourself be vulnerable and peel those layers off in a loving community with that support and singing from the heart. It's one of the most beautiful, I don't know, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. And that's, you just hit the nail on the head for me. It's the loving community. It's the loving community where I might not be able to hold myself in that much love, but then... When we're all in it together, we help each other. We hold, we lift each other up in that vibe, in that bhav. So that, again, it's a great value of Shakti Fest, Bhakti Fest, these festivals that really encourage us to participate in the highest vibrations of chant. I love it. Yeah, I do too. And there is something about being at Joshua Tree uh, for me. That place is extremely powerful. And I'm not going to be able to be there for Shakti Fest this year. And I, I know that it's going to be a really, a really wonderful weekend down there. Um, 
Yeah, I'm trying not to dwell on that too much, but I'm I'm going <laughs> I'm going to Midwest and I'll be there I'll be there in, in September. But uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, so anyway, tell me a little bit about about what's next for you. You're you, you've got a CD coming out mm-hmm. at some yeah. point in the fall. Yeah, you know, it's so funny when I really look at it. I, I've been doing a lot of traveling and a lot of teaching and. You know, uh, so I have a little bit of a backlog. I have about three of them. But the next one I'm going to do is a Kirtan CD, and it's got some of the more groove chants. It's got a lot of also some of the more Kirtan, but with a classical influence and some spaciousness so people could do yoga to it. It will have that bum, bum, da bum, bum. <laughs> I'll include that and oh, good. some other songs. Um, so that will come out in the fall. Um, I leave tomorrow for New York for um, some programs, and then I'll be in Ecuador, actually, uh, helping lead a retreat. And then I lead a raga and songwriting and chanting workshop in British Columbia, Canada, June 6th through the 11th. And I'll be in Europe this summer, and then I leave my... Then I go to Bhakti Fest. Yay! Yay! (laughs) And then I'll be... um, I will be in India and Japan again in the fall. Oh, my. So tell me a little bit about your tour to India in the fall. Where do you go? Um, well, generally, we, we land in Delhi, so it's a North Indian tour. And we go to Vrindavan, which is, of course, Krishna town. Mm. And we chant with all the Hare Krishnas. We go to Neem Karoli Baba's ashram, which, honestly, the last time I went there, it felt like sitting with my Guruji, Papaji, Punjaji. I mean, I never met Maharaji, but... The mind goes blank, like, like in the best possible sense of the word. There's only, like, light. It was amazing. And then we go to Radhakund, where Shamdas, you know, he's talked a lot about it. I've been there many times. It's just a bhakti haven, um, where Radha broke her bangles to dig the kund, and Krishna called in the waters <laughs> to help fill the lake. Um and then we go to Varanasi, and that's where my tantric teacher, Sanskrit teacher, and classical singing teachers are. So we meet with them, do a lot of sweet practice. Nobody gets sick. We eat healthy. We stay right on the Ganga. We go to Rishikesh, which, um, you know, that's a real great place for yoga on the Ganga. The water's very clean up there. And we go up to the uh, cave where the Gayatri Mantra, Vasista's cave. Vasista was the uh, guru of Vishwamitra who brought the... Gayatri Mantra to us all. And then there are some add-ons. There's some special things we all... We we generally go to the Taj Mahal. To be honest, I always think that's... And the people always say after the tour, they always want to go to the Taj, and at the end they say that was the least amazing thing. Even though the Taj is amazing, it's just that so much is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, generally we go to Rajasthan and have a... You know, stay in a palace and have overnight on camels. And I have a Sufi family there that I'm very close to. So we go to the mosque... And we chant to Allah also. Oh, Gina, that sounds like a wonderful, wonderful trip. Yeah, yeah, it's um, very blessed. Would you? Do you know? Was the was it the Gayatri mantra that women were not allowed to sing? Yeah. So there. Um, so I was in Bali years ago, and I remember I was singing the Gayatri mantra with my group, and a priest came up and said, "Oh my gosh, you know the spells," and traditionally, in um, India, of course, this mantra was known to be so powerful, as was the Mahamrityanjaya mantra and others, that they said that it would be much too powerful for a woman, women couldn't sing it, too powerful for a non-Brahman man, 
And so only the Brahman-initiated men could chant them. Now, of course, other people chant it. And uh, it's, but it is a powerful mantra. You know, Krishna said, of the mantras, I am Gayatri. Of the mountains, I am Himalaya. So it's a powerful mantra. Wow. Of illumination, of enlightenment. Gina, it has been really wonderful to talk to you today. I'm sorry I'm going to miss your set, but I hope to see you at Bhakti Fest West in September. Well, it's been wonderful talking with you, Kitsi, and I just so appreciate all your sharing. You are really part of the Sarasvati, the connecting energy flowing and connecting us all in this Bhakti world. So thank you. It's been a pleasure. I can't tell you how much doing this brings to my life, and I'm quite clear that I'm a conduit, and it is a privilege and a pleasure to be that. And I get to talk to wonderful artists like you, which is like the icing on the cake. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. Sometimes I feel so dark inside say, Shine your light on Shine your light on us My world is crumbling now Let your love light rain on down Out of the ashes
happening Don't ask me how I could say such a thing I've seen our world crumble in the dust And I know there is love and there is Except this. <laughs> 